It is good to see each of you, and if you are visiting, we welcome you. So glad that you're here. We hope that you'll be able to come back and be with us time and time again. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. It is exciting to see as we come in here before services and see Andrew uh, with the younger ones up front and the pew packers and them learning and being excited about learning and, and the great ability that Andrew has to work with them. And we appreciate that so much. It's exciting to think that just before that, uh, our teens were involved in Foundations 2004 and I could see them coming out and, and they're going and, and asking various ones to mentor them, to help them learn how to teach a class. And, and it's just just awesome to see our young people excited and involved in learning and doing God's will. And they get it honest. As Doug has prayed here, the blessings that we have to be in a congregation uh, that is full of adults that are willing to, to love God and to serve God and to be a part of God's family and to be active in His kingdom. And what a blessing it is. Let's always make sure that that we're doing what God would have us to do, that we're in God's hands and we're in His control, and let's give ourselves wholly over to Him. Tonight, we're going to see what Paul would say is the rest of the story to the folks of Corinth. If you'll remember, we mentioned that first the famine was mentioned in Acts the 11th chapter. Then, in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, Paul approached those at Corinth and gave them a system to their giving that he wanted them to implement. And then he comes back about a year later and he writes 2 Corinthians, the 8th and 9th chapter. Tonight, we'll only be able to study just a few verses out of the 9th chapter. Probably being a part of Bible classes recently, you've become uh, reminded and maybe have studied in depth the 8th and ninth chapter. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to go back as part of your personal study this week and read the 8th and ninth chapter. The 8th and ninth chapter is really the formula for motivating individuals to give that even we see today if maybe you go to a fundraising banquet where uh, someone gets up and they give a speech just before everybody is asked to help an orphan's home or to help a college. And if you'll go back and look at the 8th chapter, that is the same formula that great motivational speakers use today. Paul was using it there. And I don't mean to belittle it. It's sincere. He goes and he says, look, here's some great examples. Look at Macedonia. Look at what the Lord gave. And then he asked them, will you give yourself first in this? Later on in the chapter, he even says, will you give your mind to this? And once he has motivated them for the reason to give, we can be like generous people like those of Macedonia. We can be like our Lord Jesus Christ that gave his life. Won't you give your life for this cause? And if you give your life, you're going to be a good steward of all that you have. And that brings Paul around to the topic of their giving, their money. You know, Marshall Keeble was the one that he would say, and, and saying something very important in kind of a lighthearted way, he would say, when we baptize you, we baptize you and your billfold. That was his way of saying when an individual gives themselves wholly to God, they give all of their being and their assets to God. 
how can we use our home to God's glory? How can we use our car to God's glory? How can we use all that God places in our hands for God's glory? And so that's the plea, the motivation as we come through 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians, the 9th chapter, and we're going to begin reading at verse 6. And we're going to think about the return, the return of those that give. 2 Corinthians, the 9th chapter, and verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The principle of sowing and reaping is so very important for us to understand in all avenues of life. So oftentimes when individuals come and, and they sit across the room, across the desk there, and, and they're pouring out struggles and challenges and disappointments in their life, sowing and reaping is almost always one of the things that we have to cover. That is a principle that God has ordained as He created this earth, and we have to live with it, and we have to suffer the consequences of it. And if we keep sowing the same thing, we have to keep sowing the same thing. Decide to change what we sow, and in return, we can have a different harvest. And so it's a principle that is much broader than just that of financial stewardship, but yet it's interesting that he takes that principle and he applies it here most definitely to financial stewardship. Now we know that when we sow something, we expect to reap, but it will generally be a little later on. We'll expect to reap more than what we've sown. And usually what is reaped will affect or bless more than just the one who has sown it. And so as we think about those, it's interesting that he uses the word sparingly. And what's interesting is that when you go back to the 8th chapter and you see in verse 8 and 9 of the 8th chapter where he speaks of Jesus Christ and he says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace, and you could even word grace there, the gift, where he says, you know the gift or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was made, that though he was rich, in other words, he was in heaven, he had all the heavenly riches, yet for your sake he took upon himself uh, the image of a man, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, Jesus gave up so much to come and walk on this earth, and what Paul wants us to understand was, it was a gift. The gift from heaven to earth. It was a gift so that we could receive a blessing that we could not otherwise receive. How was that gift defined? Let's go over to Romans, the, the uh, eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. And let's read 31 and 32 and see how God would define this gift of Jesus coming to this earth. He says, Romans 8, verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you haven't put that one on your mirror or meditated on it as you're driving, do that tomorrow. A beautiful passage. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare. Notice that word. If we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. Jesus was a gift to us 
What kind of gift was Jesus? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? In other words, He is reminding us here of what God has done. God and Christ have been very generous. They didn't sow sparingly. They sowed bountifully. And then it's the reminder at the end of this verse, if He would give that much, do you not think that He'll go ahead and take care of all the rest of our needs? So Jesus is the perfect example of one that would not sow sparingly. And of course, in Christianity, our desire and our relationship with God is to become more like Jesus every day. And so we're seeking to become individuals that would sow bountifully. As we consider this, I'd like for you to also consider that I believe this principle and many of the principles about giving apply not only to individuals, but also to congregations. Think of a congregation, as I heard of just in the last few days, A small congregation, very, very small congregation, probably less than 30 members. And they have $200,000 in the bank. And for years they refused to do anything except hold on to the money. Now what has that congregation done? Have they used what God has given them sparingly or generously? What kind of return is that congregation going to receive? What kind of blessings are they going to receive? What kind of rewards, not only earthly but eternally, are they going to receive for decisions like that? But think on the other hand of of a congregation where they're using their, their, their people... We could send people to this mission point and we could send people to the mission point and we could send our teenagers to this mission point and think of how many people, 600 people could influence in one year for God. And we're using the abilities. Think of individuals that have this ability to do this and, and the ones that have this ability to carry out this ministry and the ones that have this ability to carry out this ministry. And then think of, of to be able to take funds and say, let's send some to Russia and let's send some to other parts of the world and let's send some throughout Mount Juliet in benevolent nature. Think about God looking down and saying, my law of sowing and reaping would be just as true for congregations as it would be for individuals. Oftentimes, we pray for good reasons. God, thank you for blessing us richly. And one of the things God has blessed us richly is because as a congregation, we're doing at least close to our best of being bountiful in our sowing. And let's never forget that that's part of the reason why God continues to give a bounty of blessings to us. So we see the return. The return for givers is always good because God is always good on His Word. Now let's read another verse, verse 7, and let's think about the plan that is laid out here as we read verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes, or in other words, as he plans in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
God has always intended for givers to come with a plan of how they would give. The idea of reaching in the pocket and seeing what is, just can be grabbed at the moment or, or what is, is left has never been God's plan. Even back under the old covenant, it was always a plan. It was to plan for the first fruits, and it was plan how much of the first fruits. And we covered a lot of that even this morning as we talk about to give as we have uh, prospered, there has to be a plan to it. And so let's make sure that we always plan according to God's plan. If you will, turn with me to Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, and you can hold your finger here, we'll come right back. As we go to Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, you may remember that back uh, a year or more, maybe a couple years ago, we did a few lessons out of Ecclesiastes and some other passages, and we talked about really all that it is to be used in God's service. In other words, we wouldn't dream of storing up a shed of a thousand tools. We'd say uh, a tool is to be used. And so as, as we think about this, we think about what is our plan in giving? What is our finances? God wants us to have a godly plan. Let's pick up here in the middle. It would really begin at least back in verse 10, maybe even back in verse 8. But let's notice as we read in Ecclesiastes 5 here, verse 13, have a plan that he would identify in 13 by saying, There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those whose riches perish through misfortune, and he talks about passing it on but it, to, to uh, an inheritance, but yet it didn't accomplish anything. God never intended for us to just hold on to it and hold on to it. God intends for us to use what He gives us to His glory. And so our plan can be wrong. In other words, here these people had a plan, and He says, it's an evil plan. And we can read on down in verse 16, again He says, and this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. In other words, hanging on to it and hanging on to it. And the idea that I have this much and I want some more. So I'm going to hang on to this and try to get some more. And then we get this. And by the way, that goes back to verse 10. All of this is built off the principle. Look at 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. In other words, it's, it's just the opposite of contentment. It's when we start holding on to it, what we find ourselves is the serving one master or the other. And when we begin serving money, it's the idea, I've got to have a little more. And so we create a plan. I can do this and I can get a little more. And then we have that and we create another plan. I can do this and I can have a little more. God says, I just want to be in your plan. God is not opposed to us being profitable. He's not opposed to us saving. But He is opposed to any plan that does not put Him first. It's that simple. If he is not first in the plans where he is the master, then it becomes a severe evil plan. So let's go back now to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, the, tenth the ninth chapter, we read it verse 7, the rest just a moment ago, and now we think about the attitude. Remember the rest of this verse we just read as he says, purpose in your heart. I tell you what, before we move on, can I make one more quick application back to that plan? The same principle is true for churches. It's so important for churches to have a wise plan for how the money will be used. You know, in, in a meeting just a few moments ago, the, the elders 
asked the deacons to begin to submit plans for their approval of next year's budget. And you know, that's how the budget comes about is a deacon says, I believe we can do this in our ministry in 2005, but we're going to have to have this kind of money. And another deacon says that, and, and all of it's put together. And that's a plan. It's a plan that we strive to glorify God. And so with the plan, it's true not only for individuals, but it's true for a congregation. And what if a congregation is a poor steward? What if they don't have a plan, or what if they don't work a plan? God is for plans. He's pro-planning. And so let's look now to the attitude. Remember the rest of verse 7 said, talking about us planning in our heart to give. He says, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know when a child is, say, four, three or four years old and they're having a struggle sharing their favorite toy and finally the parent says to him, okay, I'll put you on the clock. You can have it for five minutes. And after five minutes, you have to let your brother play with it. And so five minutes is up and the child grits his teeth and he says, okay, here, you can have it. Hands it over. Did he share? Yes, he shared. Did he do it grudgingly? Absolutely, he did so grudgingly. God says, I'm as concerned about the motive, Matthew the 6th chapter, the first few verses, and the attitude, 2 Corinthians the 9th chapter, verse 7, as I am the gift. The gift is a command. But he says, I want you to give it because you want to give it. And that's what he means when he says, not grudgingly, nor of necessity. In other words, think how strange this sounds. Someone could say to a faithful Christian, does God command you to give? Yes. So do you give because you have to? No, I don't want to give with that kind of heart. Isn't that interesting? It's a command, but God says, I want you to give because you want to give. Not grudgingly, not a necessity. Well, the only reason I let you have that toy is because Mama said I had to let you have that toy. God, the only reason I gave you that gift is because you said that you wanted it and I just want to be faithful to you. God is as concerned and really more so because that's where it all begins. He's more concerned about the heart than is anything else because if the heart is right, everything else will fall into place. Let's look at the final verse 8 here, the final verse that we'll look at tonight, and let's consider the source. It's interesting that in Doug's prayer tonight, the last point and the summary of these lessons, he prayed about. It's beautiful. He prayed about the fact that we know that he is the source of all these gifts. And that's what Paul is reminding those of Corinth and reminding us of. And really, we could read for several more verses here, but for time's sake, we're not going to. Let's look at verse 8, and then, like I say, if you want on your personal study, the same point we're making here is developed for several more verses. And God is able to make all grace... Now, notice that grace is the gift. God is able to make all gifts abound toward you that you always have all sufficiency in all things, why would we need gifts? Why would we need sufficiency? Notice the rest of this. May have an abundance for every good work. Let's work through these three phrases, primary phrases here in this. First, God is able to make these things abound. This ties right in to two verses earlier of sowing and reaping. It's in God's hands. He owns the world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can shift gifts around, and He can look at someone that's giving generously here, and, and so they're taking what God has given them, and they're using it for His glory. So He says, hey, I can give you more. 
a beautiful thought that God is in control of all of this. But note this. In the King James, the New King James here, he says, having all sufficiency. Now, the first thing that comes to your mind when you read that, if you're like me, is you think, the reason I have sufficiency is because God gave it. That really may not be the best way to translate that word. For example, if we looked over at 1 Timothy 6, chapter and verse 6, and you may not want to turn, you'll recognize this verse. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. The original language, the word contentment there is the same exact word as sufficiency here. So in other words, he's saying that if we will rely upon God to supply all of our needs, our abundance, we will find ourselves with great contentment. You know, if God is our money, we're never content. We're uneasy. I didn't say that right. If money is our God, if money is our God, we're never at ease. It's always the fear of, okay, I'm secure and I'm safe as long as I have it. But, but what if a recession comes? What if the stock market falls? Or, or what if real estate in this area goes down? Or, or whatever, we've placed it. And again, it's not wrong to have the investment. It's wrong for them to be our God. And it's wrong to use them against God's glory. And it's wrong for them to have the preeminence in our life. And if those things have the preeminence in our life, we're always tossing at night and we're restless. And God says, I want to be your God. I want you to rely upon me. I can supply your needs. Therefore, you can be content. Now here is the neat twist to it. But a faithful Christian might say, God, I just have so many good works that I want to do and I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough resources to carry them all out. And he closes verse 8 by saying, I'm going to give it... that You can have an abundance for every good work. I'm starting on these toes. And let's work our way back. Do you want an abundance so you can carry out so many good works? That's a beautiful thought. I think us here do. But you know what? We're going to have to work on that all the days of our life. Let's close this entire series by reading a prayer that Doug prayed just a few moments ago, and let's read almost that same prayer from Proverbs, the 30th chapter. When we think about the wonderful teachers we've had this month on Sunday morning that have helped us to to study and think about this important topic of growing spiritually by giving ourselves wholly to God and including our, our finances... And we think about the literature that's been available and we think about the sermons that we we have studied together. This ought to always be in some form or fashion the prayer that comes across our lips so often, just as Doug did tonight. We're in Proverbs, the 30th chapter, in verse 7. Two things I request of you. He's talking about two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Number one, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I have a desire that God is first and foremost in our life to the extent that we say, Lord, I don't ever want to be poor. I might turn my back on you. But I don't ever want to be so wealthy that I turn my back on you. In other words, what his prayer was is, Lord, give me the amount that I can handle as a Christian. Let's close this series with a prayer. Let's bow. Our most gracious God, you have blessed us in so many ways. And Lord, we pray that we will always be faithful to you first in giving our whole self to you. Lord, as we have considered many passages from your word, we pray that we will be faithful givers. Lord, individually, we pray the song, the proverb. Please do not give us more or less than we can handle. Lord, help us as a congregation to always be bountiful givers. Lord, thank you for the gift of your Son. Help us to remember that wonderful example. Lord, we look forward to spending an eternity with you and enjoying an eternal portion of the rewards that we have sent ahead. Lord, thank you for the spirit of this congregation, for the relationships that we have that are so deep that Many in this congregation would die for each other. Many in this congregation would serve each other undyingly. And Lord, help us to always be willing to serve you to the end. And it's through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Tonight, if you haven't given your life to God, what a wonderful... If you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins, won't you do that tonight as a believer willing to repent of sins and confess those before men? Tonight, if, if you have become a Christian and, and somewhere along the way things are off track in your life, tonight's a wonderful time to come back one with God. Nice that this whole study God growing spirit. And let's make sure that we leave here tonight with the right thing spiritually.